Minimalism, the podcast where we talk about the comics and graphic novels worth having on your shelf, and sometimes more. I'm Taylor Trask. I'm Todd A. And Todd, it is uh, June. Uh, somehow we somehow we cruise through April and May, and I've I've lost all sense of time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so so we're back. And, and apologies to our listeners. We've been a little. We've been a little hit and miss when it comes to episodes lately. It's just between it being just very busy in both of our lives, I think trying to find the kinds of episodes that work in a climate where, you know, we're still dealing with COVID. We're still dealing with some of those things. And at the same time, you know, if you're listening to this in the future, we're in the middle of a very significant, um, relevant discussion about race and the police and economics and social justice and all these things. So it's just kind of like... It, it doesn't seem quite as appropriate to talk about the Avengers during, you know, during this in a, you know, in a sort of uh, yeah. less serious way. So we've been, we've been a little, a little bit hesitant to, to kind of keep up business as usual. I guess is that a fair statement? I p- p- completely fair, and uh, I think we've mentioned on a couple of shows. I mean, I, I think people probably feel the same uh, fatigue with the world that we do. Um, it's, it's honestly hard to just sort of carve out time to say, this is my reading time. You know, it's like, I almost feel like I need constant distraction to avoid, uh, uh, dealing with the real world, which inevitably leads to like a, uh, a crash, (laughs) you know, by not dealing with it. Like there's other than the anxiety just builds up and stuff. Um, but I'm happy with what we, we did here this week, which was, uh, we had a listener, um, a friend of mine, suggest to us that we should probably just talk about books uh, written by people of color, um, especially black authors. Mm-hmm. And we really took that to heart. And so that's what we're going to do today. Yeah, we'll get into that in just a minute. Before that, though, there has been uh, some news of worth noting uh, in the comics and, and, and comics industry world or comics adjacent world. Especially um, because said- we talked a lot about this in our last episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you had sent me this link earlier in the week and by now I'm sure it's, it's pretty well, well known, but DC is cutting ties with diamond distribution very, very oh, soon. Like as of it, this month, um, they're going to use either, I forget who they're using for, uh, traditional, I think penguin maybe for, uh, like hardcover graphic novels and then another smaller entity, for all their regular um, weekly issues, but they're they're cutting ties with Diamond. There's a great article we can uh, you know link to in the show notes. Um, kind of talks about this. I think it's the Hollywood Reporter. Is that right? Or, yes. Uh, yeah. Um, but what that article brings up that I was a little shocked by was that Diamond had withheld monthly payments or some amount of payments to DC and I'm guessing to other publishers. And that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back uh, when it comes to DC pulling out. Like they, you know, Diamond had shut down. And probably rightfully so for a period of time, but the fact that they were not paying DC, you know, for for books distributed is a little bit concerning. Yeah. How did you, boy, what did you think about that? We've had a real roller coaster, <laughs> a real journey with Diamond, right? Like seriously, we uh, kind of badmouthed them in a, in a couple of episodes because we 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 wondered, you know, we didn't understand the situation. We thought, well, is this ridiculous that there's one distributor? Uh, that's bottlenecking all of this. Not that I thought they should be distributing physical issues during this time. Yeah. Um, then uh, we mentioned them in the last show because there was an episode of Fat Man Beyond where he talked to the owner of Diamond who said, hey, we want competition in this area. But then at the time, we didn't know they were withholding payments. Um, and, I, you know, it's obvious that like, I, I, I think what I recall from the article was that this was already sort of 
on the agenda for DC to determine the future when the pandemic struck. So yeah. when when Diamond, you know, when their only source of distribution shut down and that source withheld payment uh, to the company, it was like, okay, this is a no brainer. We've got to find a, a, an alternative to this. So I don't, I don't know what to think about this. You know, on one hand, competition is good. Maybe this opens up some opportunities for indie publishers, but it may also sort of like kneecap, you know, the, the biggest distributor that was putting a lot of indie publishers on in a kind of even keel with the two big names, you know? Yeah, it could it could result in Diamond just focusing more on indie stuff. So maybe more more smaller niche companies or brands get uh, distribution where they hadn't before. Um, that could be an interesting result. I did want to clarify though, DC during um, Diamond's hiatus uh, decided to create two smaller companies, Lunar Distribution and USC Comics Distributors. And so strangely, you think they would just be DC Comics Distribution. You think they just keep it all on brand. But they created those two companies to handle periodical distribution while Diamond was closed. All of this is in the article. So it's DC is working on it. I, my guess is Marvel is not far behind if they're not already in motion. Yeah. And I would even imagine Image might be thinking along the similar, you know, same lines. Image is very loosely distributed. Like Image is, the, the organizational structure of Image is very loose. It's not quite like Neo DC, so I, that might be a little different. Um, but Marvel, I would imagine, is following it. I'm, I'm going to go back well, to a point I made earlier. I think on the last episode we talked about Diamond. Wouldn't surprise me in the least if DC and Marvel both do. You know, DC's already done it, but Marvel does it, and then we see both of those companies just start their own comic shops or start to buy up comic shops in different markets to have yeah. a complete end-to-end -end control of of all aspects of the of the medium. You know, for them, so it's some of these things might be on the horizon that we never thought of before. And it maybe, maybe it's good. Maybe it's bad. It remains to be seen now. And one of the comments I saw, which, uh, I, I can't restate in as much clarity as it was first expressed was, uh, you know, someone brought up that very point, uh, cause I saw this as a thread on Reddit and uh, someone brought up that very point of like, well, Marvel's next, they're going to jump ship. And then, and then, uh, the next commenter said, well, why would Marvel leave though? Now they have the power of diamond, all ah. to themselves and it was like oh right you know in a in a good bad way of like you know dc really is is pioneering here i guess yeah. um but the other thing the other thing i learned from that article was um that this distribution relationship isn't really that old um what did it say was it is it only is it only 30 years or something like that or is that maybe that's even only 30 Longer years, 25 years, 25 years, 25 years. Yeah. So you think it was just in the mid nineties that, that this appeared, um, yeah. comics survived for a long time before diamond. <laughs> well, diamond was always around, time. but yeah. like the, the consolidation they sort of happened yeah, exactly. in the nineties, you know, late nineties too. So yeah, that's, I'd never thought about Marvel having more to gain from this. That's an interesting angle. It is. I, I tend to agree with you and I, I don't know shit about business, but I tend to think that like I, I, they're they're probably going to want their own solution because in the sense that like they, they need alternatives. If, yeah. if one does get shut down, they can't be bottlenecked like getting their comics out. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, I hope we've seen like such a great quality of digital comics. And um, in our discussion last time, I, I sort of flip flopped my position, which is I, I think I'm going to use Comixology for a lot of single issues. Mm -hmm. And only go print when I, I 
want a collection. But even just saying that out loud, I think, no, 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 they need my support for the single issues. Oh, God, I'm so torn. It's hard, man. It's hard. You know, it helps that there are some stores that do a great job of, of um, offering variant covers yeah. to you know, like Muse Comics here in town and the Springs is a great example. Like they're kind of my go-to. I love Escape Velocity. I've shouted them out many times, but Muse more often than not really focuses on variants. I think to their credit yeah. so that I know, Ooh, that, I mean, going back to decorum one more time, like that decorum variant yeah. that I have is amazing. I only want, I mean, I would want that physically, not digitally. Um, so like there's, I, I think it creates more incentive to be creative and to really, I think, offer something if i'm going to buy something physically the souvenir of the thing like really from the both the publisher standpoint and then the comic shop standpoint really orient around creating a unique experience that digital isn't ever going to you know provide you and maybe we'll see more of that maybe more variants more interesting variants come down the pike too. i agree i i you know you can't get away from the fact that like at its heart uh comics are different from other uh, media because someone is putting like an ink on paper you know, yeah, yeah. like even if even if the artists now are doing that more through digital means, it's still represented in its final medium. You know what I mean? Is like when it was created, it was someone putting a pencil on a piece of paper. And when it gets to you, it's ink on paper. Um, whereas, you know, music uh, was never going to be delivered to you through a guitar that played itself or something ah, like that. Maybe yeah. my metaphor is getting lost here. But, you know, it's the the comics medium is very, very pure. And so I think there's always going to be something with that physical even more so than like regular books too, because you know, you're reading a text on a Kindle is actually, in my opinion, superior, like just, you know, text with no imagery is superior than a poorly formatted, you know, paper, you know, paperback, or even sometimes yeah. a, a poorly formatted hardcover comics. It re like the medium itself and Alan Moore has gone yeah. to great extent to be like, there's things you can do in the comics medium physically printed out that you cannot do in any other medium, even the digital side of it. Um, so it's, yeah. it is kind of this unique, very unique, it's in this unique kind of place where, yeah, music stores probably don't, you know, with the exception of like the really kind of niche indie uh, vinyl ones, really don't need to have a store that has pieces of plastic that you go and buy. Like that you can just have that on your phone. You're still hearing it, um, you know, to, to various quality. You're hearing it, you know, the same way. You know, it doesn't, you're not, look, you're not having to sit there and like hold the thing right. in your hand while you're listening. It's a little different. Yeah. And, and more than books, they are designed, you know, books, yes. books tend to be, uh, you know, you, I mean, I have so many books that I've later in life realized, like, this is a bad user experience because it wasn't designed. Um, boy, that's a rabbit hole I could fall down. We do have other DC news. <laughs> yeah, other qu and just quick little things. We'll get to our, our books in just a minute. But um, it's worth noting, too, that this was the weekend Wonder Woman 1984 was supposed to come out um, and has been pushed to August 14th. But that's still highly dependent on if theaters are open. Um do you imagine that that date sticks? Do you imagine we're going to you know have that or do you think that will be Do you think this ultimately just gets dropped on HBO Max this I autumn? Hope not. I I mean it, it you know it does from what we saw in the trailers like it looks like this is a big superhero movie that deserves like a big showing but yeah. and maybe I'm overlooking this uh, for better or worse but I have not heard a lot about how how theaters are going to reopen. So yeah, like we, we, I've heard that a lot about restaurants, you know, 50% capacity and like literally just taking tables out of the places and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know anything about theaters and they certainly can't take seats out. And what are they to do if, you know, a bunch of people get in there and don't want to follow the, the, you know, the recommendations it's, it's tough. And, and yeah. which really hurts because that was such a refuge of mine, you know, same. to like literally oh, walk across the street and just 
take in a matinee and now I feel like I, I'm not sure when that's going to happen again and if it's going to be safe to do that. So the summer movie season, as I mentioned before, many times, um, you know, as frothy oh, yeah. as it can be, was always kind of a staple of my year. Like, oh, I know I'll be seeing some really exciting, interesting, you know, fun thing, you know, once every two weeks, you know, kind of uh, and going yeah. into either the Alamo Draft House or my local theater. So that not having I mean, I haven't stepped in a theater since February um, yeah, to see a movie. And it's kind of like, wow, that's. You know, we'll get back there. The Alamos of the world will, will definitely continue on, but we may see a, a good chunk of, of spaces go go away. And maybe a good thing, maybe a bad thing. Um, the other thing I want to mention is we are back to having sort of a, a community book club uh, this month. And we will be, uh, I think, very appropriately so, reading the book's March volumes, or sorry, book one and book two as part of our June book club. Um, there is a book three which uh, is, you know, completes the series uh, just for, for I think, to, to give us enough to focus on in an episode. We'll just be covering books one and two, um, but definitely get books book three if you have it too, or if you can. Um, just a quick quick uh, sort of summary. This is, this is kind of the autobiography of um, John Lewis, who was one of the key five or six people involved in the civil rights movement. Um, he was, you know, in his early, early 20s when he marched with King and, um, uh, these books kind of detail his life, but also give you a very, very dramatic, accurate look into race relations and police and just where the nation was in the 60s. And having been born after that, it's actually, for me, it was probably the first time I was able to really finally put myself in that headspace, put myself in that place, you know, that, that space and time kind of understand what's going on. Um, so I, I, you know, you, Todd, you haven't read them yet. It'll be a great discussion. I think for us to have, we're yeah. going to have, uh, we're going to record that podcast on June 20th and put it out on the 24th. So it gives you time to go pick up March book one and two and join us for that discussion. Yeah. Excellent. I I've already bought mine on comiXology and I'm ready to dive in. Fantastic. Um, do you want to tee up our, our discussion today? Because we've got several books we, which oh, we're man. talking about, but they're all <laughs> they're all kind of centered around the idea of of um, you know just I, I think you know yeah uh, you know, so uh, all things uh, political graphic novels I think yeah I I sigh and 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 uh, uh, let out an exasperated chuckle because it's like where do you begin? This has been yeah. such a heavy week. And, um, and one thing you and I didn't talk about in our, our pre-show stuff is that I, I've listened to several podcasts that have addressed what's going on, um, in terms of like, like an entertainment podcast where they, uh, you know, they, they made a statement about why they were releasing an episode this week. And I, and honestly, it, you know, it's just, it's just so heavy that I, I don't know that we need to say anymore other than to just focus on, um, uh, creators who are black or persons of color and say, Hey, you know, we're, we're reading you and we're listening to you. And we, we don't want this to be, uh, a one-off book club kind of thing. Like this is, this is something we're going to pay more attention to. And I think we, we really try to have a lot of diversity, um, in the books that we cover often where I think that comes out for you and I is that, um, we 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 often look at it more in terms of like um, female creators versus male mm -hmm. creators or something. Uh, so this week just gave us a, a really, you know, man, I mean, just a bleak opportunity to say what are we not covering and yeah. and look at it. And I mean, I was so happy when I suggested it to you because um, uh, my friend who suggested that we do this 
gave a list of several books, um, not all of which she had read. And uh, when I sent that list over to you, you immediately had a list of other uh, other books by people of color. And it was like, oh, this that's that's so amazing because um, I I, I don't know. I just I just liked that there was immediately like a a swell of ideas around that um, and how to put the spotlight on that. Uh, and then, you know, I'll, I'll, <laughs> like I was, I was saying to you in the pre-show and I said, I'll try to hold, hold off on this is that it's just, everything is just so much right now. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't mean that as an excuse that we, we can't pay attention to what black voices are saying. I just mean that it's, it was hard for me to sort of, a, to be, it's, it, it is hard for me in this pandemic to be able to focus on an emotional response to anything mm-hmm. because it's, it's, it's so desperate. And, uh, you know, I, the, this, this was like, uh, making this homework was a good way for me to sit down and go like, okay, here's, here's two hours of me reading a book where I can, I'm not going to think about anything else, but the subject of this book. And so, yeah, I, um, I read a book this week, uh, that my friend recommended, which was, um, incognito. Uh, the author is Matt Johnson and the artist is Warren Pleece. Um, and it is the story of a journalist who from Harlem who passes for white and goes to the deep South in the era of lynchings, um, and covers lynchings as a, his, his byline in the Harlem papers is incognito. Nobody knows who this author is. Um, and it just has this really interesting origin story, which is, um, Matt Johnson, his mother is African-American and his, his father is white. And he talks about how he, he grew up in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. And it, it, this edition of, of the book is amazing too, because it was published in 2007. They re-released it in 2017. So there is an afterword from the Trump era, Mm. uh, that, you know, puts this in this context of like, you know, I mean, Jesus Christ, like I, um, you know, I saw not to, not to divert again, (laughs) I, but I saw, uh, I I don't, I I don't know where to go with that. Never mind. I just can't believe that like in my lifetime, this is like, it is absurd that we are still having to have these conversations in the sense that it is an indisputable fact (laughs) that policing is racist and, and the police are militarized and that our institutions were based on, uh, you know, uh, racist ideas and things like that. You know, I mean, this is just, it's hard to comprehend because I remember sitting around as a, uh, a freshman discussing, uh, Spike Lee's movies, you know, mm-hmm. and, oh, we're finally having this conversation. And during the Rodney King riots thinking like, oh, we're finally having this conversation. This is fucking 30 years after that. Yeah. Like my whole lifetime is that, and I can't, I, you know, like my, to think of our parents age and their entire life has been this. I mean, oh my God. Anyway, sorry. I'm, uh, uh, no, it's quite all right. Getting distracted it's, because every, yeah, it's, it's, it's so a much lot to pour to into get. this moment. 
Well, it's a lot to take in because you're like, yeah, we're, here we are again. Same, same, exactly. same as it ever was. And granted, at the same time, though, I want to be very, very clear. There has been a lot of progress made since, you know, the 1800s, since 1968, since 1992. There's been a lot of progress to the point where a black woman was finally um, elected as mayor of Ferguson, Missouri. Kind of the, the, th- the place that kicked off all of this is finally seeing some really good news come down the pike. You know, a, a woman of color, first black mayor in their history, actually first woman in their history too. So there's been good things. It's almost like we're kind of in the last, you know, 10 well, to 15% of the work and it's the hardest 10 to 15% that needs to be done. So it yeah. feels more, a lot, it feels harder. It feels both more meaningful, but also like, I, I just want to really make sure we're acknowledging, we're, this isn't a lost cause. Progress has happened. Think good things are occurring. We're sort of we're still in it, but we're we're pushing ahead. And it's just I think some of these books that we're talking about, yeah, do and, both to remind us of that, but also it's kind of depressing to be like, wow, we're still we're still at it. Okay, all right. Well, and 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 you know, whether whether it's uh, hopeful thinking or even more <laughs> grim thinking, I I do wonder if we're in a if the if you know if everything about the Trump era and the pushback and uh, this this frustration coming to a head at this moment is because that racist era of politics is in its death throes mm-hmm. with um you know our generation and the generations uh, beneath us like is that what we are seeing now is is the dying off of that boomer attitude and the silent generation attitude of like you know it was always better back when like are you know are we finally pushing through that um uh, I guess I hope that that's the case and that that's why, but it definitely feels like we're in a moment now, you know, yeah. and sorry to, uh, divert on this, but to tie it back in, one of the great things I read this week was the story of how, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, persuaded Nichelle Nichols to stay on Star Trek as Lieutenant Uhura oh, that's and, and say, we need your representation on TV every week. Mm. And I, that's just such a, uh, a cool story of how like a, uh, what now we think of as like purely geek culture mm-hmm. was, you know, it was pop culture. There wasn't so much culture in the sixties that Star Trek could be easily put into a niche of, you know, geekism or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, front and center on Friday nights or whatever, like there was Nichelle Nichols and um, playing a Lieutenant in space, you know, in the future. And yeah. what a cool idea that is. Huh. Um, to focus back on the book I read, uh, um, Matt Johnson has this interesting story, um, as I mentioned, because, uh, his mother was African-American, his father was white. Um, so he talks about growing up, um, in that, that in sort of the black power era in the seventies in this African-American neighborhood. And so like his mom tried to help him fit in, um, but he looked white. And he had, you know, his hair was almost blonde. It was mostly straight. Um, and he had a cousin who was also half black and half Jewish. And they made up this this uh, this little game where they would go incognito, um, pretending to be race spies in the war against white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so he talks about how he, he kind of, you know, forgot about that after his childhood. And he went to college. And it wasn't until then when he learned um uh, that Walter White, the uh, head of the NAACP, um, could also pass as white. And in the early 20th century, he would go undercover 
um, as a white man in the deep South to investigate lynchings, um, which, I, you know, again, like, and I'll touch on this in our discussion, something I, like I didn't know, I, you know, I didn't even, I, yeah, I, I didn't know that story. Um, so he, he had this moment of connection in college with that story of like, oh, wow, this was a thing that, you know, happened. And then he talks about, well, then take that further. And, uh, in 2005, um, he had twins, uh, Matt Johnson, the, the writer, and one of them, uh, is, uh, brown skinned and has black hair. And the other is very pale pink skin and has this more European sort of hair. And all of these ideas sort of come together. And the story of Incognito is, is that story of this journalist who can pass as white, goes to the deep South to investigate lynchings. Um, uh, and, um, I don't want to get too much into it, but there's definitely a familial, uh, relationship that you find out about, like, you know, I'm not, not giving any spoilers here, but we find his brother factors into this, the, the, um, uh, the character in the book, I mean, and his brother cannot pass as white. His brother looks very African. So he, when their parents were, um, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, sort of a flashback sort of story, not even a flashback, but a story that the character tells in flashback of like, that's why father sent me to Harlem and said, like, you can make it out of here, you know? Um, yeah. And, uh, but you can just see it, it was such a neat story to to see that it's written here in the 21st century um, with this writer with this very specific heritage, um, putting that story back in context of the era of lynchings. Um, and it is like, I mean, it is just a page turner. Like it is, uh, a, a, you know, it is. Um, Oh man, I'm trying to contextualize it in, in other comic works. You know, uh, it reads like nonfiction, I guess is what I want to say. Like it, it reads almost like, uh, the, uh, what, what do I want to say? Like, uh, you know, like, um, like some of the scenes may have been, uh, combinations of things that happen to the oh, author okay. or to, yeah. you know, other historical events that have been sort of put into this. Like it just reads so true to life in that way. Got it. Okay. And it also manages to take these turns that, uh, aren't wild, crazy turns, you know, but are, but are so fitting and so dangerous because of that scale. I guess that's, that's what it is, is that you, it is a bit hard. And certainly it's a bit hard for me as a white man to put myself in that moment of like, when was it dangerous to go to the deep South where I, I grew up in the South? I wouldn't say the deep South. And I definitely grew up in an urban environment, but obviously I don't have any of that context at all. But yeah. what this book did was like, I felt that danger. You know, mm. I felt like, I, what powerful. is this guy doing? This guy could be murdered at any instant. And, um, the, the crux of the story, like, and also it's just like great. It's like great screenwriting too. You know, it's just this economy and pacing of the story where we see, uh, we see him finishing reporting on one story as he witnesses a lynching and does this amazing, like, uh, comeuppance to the white people in attendance because they're all posing for pictures with this dead black body. And the character tells them, uh, hey, I work with the photographer and we'll send your copies to you. What's your name and address? So then when he gets back to Harlem, he publishes the names and addresses of every person in attendance at that lynching. Mm. Um, 
whether that's an element that he got from true life or not, I don't know, but it is harrowing, you know, just like, like, I, you know, you just felt like what a, what a moment of revenge. So, um, then, then of course he, he tells his publisher, it's a very J Jonah Jameson relationship where he says, that's the, you know, you have promised me an, an office and a column with my name on it. I'm tired of being an anonymous author. Uh, I want to make something of myself. And, uh, the publisher says, well, you're going to want to report on this this event and he, you know, hands him a news clipping. Um, so he's back on the next train to go back to Alabama or whatever. And that's the case that involves his brother. Mm -hmm. Um, what he doesn't know is that one of his friends, um, who is also light skinned and can sort of pass as white, uh, jumps on the train as well because he wants to make a name for himself. So then you have this added layer of danger of like, here's a guy who's not used to, um, what the main character is, is used to, you know, not, not used to, to confronting that racism, like right up front. Um, so he's kind of a wild card, you know, he can't mm. stay quiet. He, um, and it's, it, I, it was just, it, you know, it was, it was riveting. And do you think, and, do you think some of that insight, because looking up as you're talking, look at Matt Johnson's kind of, uh, bio, yeah. his mother is African-American, his father was Irish Catholic. Um, so mixed race kid. Do you think that, that, perspective put which him by in the way that statement alone because i saw that too <laughs> says so much about the way we talk about race yeah why can't an irish catholic person be black it can be i mean totally they can, can be black. yeah but yeah. the fact that they identify that his father that way in wikipedia i mean this is not you and i identifying this that's the wikipedia entry mm -hmm. um says that we think of irish catholics as white people yeah. Like, which is such a strange thing. Anyway, I'm sorry. I interrupted. Go ahead. But, but, but he has, I mean, he has quite a body of work that speaks to both the black experience, but sort of how it just, there's a, if you go to his, his, his yeah. kind of bibliography and you're going to see a lot of work outside of even incognito. I just, I wonder if him being able to straddle both sides of that line and kind of be, you know, growing up and being sort of the, yeah. the, the product of two worlds, if that doesn't give him, and maybe does, I, I'm asking just because I'm curious, do you think that gives him the ability to tell a black story in a way that white people will empathize with more? And that's that hit you kind of more so than it would be. Not that you can't empathize that's, with a black story from a, a totally black author, but he there's a, there's a thing I've noticed where mixed race people living in both worlds really do have, they can synthesize these elements in ways that I think can often be more profound or more interesting, not interesting, more impactful um, than otherwise. I, I, where do you fall on that? How do you well, feel about that? Well, that, that's, that's a really interesting question because I do feel like, and the reason I led off with that origin story of like what Matt Johnson says in his foreword is because that, it's definitely a story that like, only he could tell, you yeah. know, he, he, he could put himself in those shoes of the story. And I think that's what allows us to get into it. So, um, I don't know that there's, it's hard to say there's any, uh, I, I wouldn't say there's like specific elements that like, you know, uh, we're able to sort of <laughs> cross that racial divide. I mean, my God, I know, I know I'm like, you know, uh, inherently biased in, in all sorts of ways. Um, but I, I don't think it was like he made an appeal to white readers in that way. Okay, okay. I think it was more about just that raw honesty and opening with that forward. So you knew like this was a man who lived in that world. And mm -hmm. so he can, he can tell you like, I, I don't know. It just, it drew me in because I felt like 
you know, that that fear of like, this is the author saying, what if if I had been born, um, you know, 50, 60 years earlier, I would be Zane Pinchback, that that writer, the the incognito writer. Yeah. So he's saying like, that would be me. You know, would I go through with all of these things? Would I keep putting myself in that danger? And and then to think like, well, he has twins and he's putting them in that sense of like, what if one of the twins you know, could pass as white and one of them could not, how far does the one twin go to, you know, to, to save the other one from these, like, it, it was just, yeah, it, it was, it, it was a great reflection on everything that's going on currently. And, you know, led me to a lot of self-reflection as well. Um, and, and one, one of the things that was startling to me was I don't know a lot about lynchings and I grew up in the yeah, South yeah, and, I, so I kept thinking about that and uh, what will possibly blow people away is um, like the, I, I came up with this. This is such, oh my God, such a dis, like distilled example of institutionalized racism. When I was a senior in high school, in our American history class, we did not cover the Civil War. Oh my goodness. So wow. we did not cover it for two stated reasons. And I, I, you know, let's, let's take my, my teacher at, at his word, like in good faith and say these, these reasons make sense. Um, one is it was an AP history class and he said it does not appear on the AP exam. Like they do not focus on the civil war. Um, so we're teaching towards the exam. And number two was, he said, you've had this in every year of your schooling. Um, so he, I, you know, it's like, it's hard to deny that he's right in both of those facts, but it's, but it's also, I think at this point, impossible to deny that the institutionalization of that was that I, a middle-class white boy did not have a, an intellectual look at the civil war as a young adult. Um, and you add to that, that I went to a private school and there were only two, um, black kids in my class. Now, granted, my class was really tiny, but to have, you know, uh, that that few in number and to say we're going to ignore the most significant thing, you know, <laughs> in all of American history is a little outrageous. Yeah. Um, and I and I think at this point, it's like it's just to me, that's like that that is the banality of institutionalized racism. They say, like, a... yeah, there's a logic to it, but. Yeah what it still does is denies you uh, a look at that because why does what I learned about the civil war in fourth grade matter as I'm going into 12th grade. And then to think that I went to college in Chicago the next year, which is a place where I guarantee all the local students there had a very different understanding of, of the civil war and, yeah. and race relations. Um, uh, you know, just, I want to put a, I'm going to put a pin in here real quick too. Cause when I, yeah, there's a please. book I'll talk about, where um, I had a similar situation. It's it's amazing what isn't included in just a tr a typical traditional K twelve curriculum that is absolutely both imperative to our our history, recent history, but also imperative to how we you know how we understand where we've come from and what's been done and how we make it better. You know how we improve that going forward. It's so many key events. I'll just quick teaser the Tulsa Oklahoma incident. Yeah. Um, which appears in a book I'm going to talk about. Like I, not once was that even mentioned. I was well into my 
late 20s before I even knew that was a thing. Well, I mean, at for all. Christ's sake, I was in my 40s when I learned about it through the Watchmen. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, that's that is shameful. You yeah. Know? And it's and, you know, in, in some ways, it's not your fault in particular, just because you don't you don't know what you don't know. And you don't even know where to search it out. It's by pure coincidence that I mean, one of the one of the genius things about graphic novels as a medium, as comics as a medium, is it lets it it makes it easier to distribute these stories in an engaging theatrical way, in an artistic way that you you know, you can empathize with more than a book. You because know, a book could tell that same story and do a good job of it, but seeing these things actually on page, seeing the art yeah. from the artist's point of view, like depicted in the, in a particular way, adds an extra level of context that creates either empathy or creates rage or what you know whatever it's meant to do from a story perspective. Comics does it. The only thing better than comics to do that thing would be TV or or movies. Although, as I say that out loud, I almost wonder maybe maybe comics is even better than that because it gives you the ability to pause, to consider you know to consider a frame. To consider a panel, you know, before it, you know, it doesn't move on. You control the pacing of the story. Yeah. Um, whereas TV kind of pulls you along for the ride. You, you get the, both the benefits of both the visual, but also the, the ability to control the flow and the timing of it. So you really get a, a truly controlled experience where you can get the most out of it. That's, I mean, we're going to talk about, I'm going to talk about rather some, some, uh, you know, um, political and, and relevant graphic novels here in a minute where it, I would never have known this point of view had it not been for th these books in this medium, you know, no TV show would have given me that same level of, of sort of consideration. So it's, I think incognito is an amazing, what a great example of this to start off with, because you have an author who's coming from a very particular background, telling a very specific story that you would only get from that kind of an author, that kind of a background. And it's just, I'm even like, as you're talking, I'm flipping through some of the, the artwork itself. Like I'll definitely grab this when we're done It's because it's, yeah. it's going to get, do a lot for me as it did for you. Just really provide, put you in a, you know, let you time travel to a place that you, in a time and a situation that you would never have access to otherwise and kind of live in it with that author from that point of view. Yeah. And, and I, the art we we've got to touch on all black and white, um, a, a very simple style, but the emotion of the characters I think is conveyed so well in it. Um, and, uh, there are all, there's so many tiny things that the, that the artist does, um, uh, that aren't like that, you know, they're not like trying to be clever or something. It's just the way something's framed or the way the look on, on one of the characters face or something as a line of dialogue is delivered where I, you know, I just, I felt it that much more if yeah. this had been in, color, if it had been, you know, inked or colored in that way, uh, that modern comics are done, it, it would have pulled me out of the moment for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I, uh, although I, I haven't read a lot by them, I was thinking of, um, uh, oh shoot, Guy de Lille. <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh yeah. Um, the, 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 and, the, uh, uh, Pyongyang um, and all those kinds of books. And, uh, and also some, uh, <laughs> oh my God, I'm trying to remember the, the, um, is it Tezuko? Uh, um, oh, wow. Uh, sorry, a Japanese artist. That that manga style from the 60s and 70s. Oh, yeah. And where it was um, uh, not super based, but or, or I mean, maybe it's even the 80s, but it's that um, uh, the guy that wrote Pushcart Man. Um, yeah, just that black and white. Like this is a a raw telling of this. Um, the the book I read, uh, Mary wept over the feet of Jesus. 
um, that drawn in quarterly style like this. Yeah, it was yeah. all of that. Like I said, like that nonfiction style. And yeah, it just got the story across in, in such a great way. Um, and one of I'm those things where well, real quick, I'm frankly surprised John and quarterly did not publish this. This is burger Berger books. As far as I can tell, um, it just seems like one of those things that John and quarterly would have gobbled up immediately. Maybe this was before their, their time. Oh no, it's 2018. Never mind. It came out in 2018. Yeah, it's interesting. I've never even heard of Berger books. I wonder what that, that might just be, might just be a, a regular book publisher. Yeah. I, um, I, I was just quickly, uh, oh my gosh, it was, a uh, um, uh, Yoshihiro Tatsumi is who, ah, there we go. Who yeah, wrote push, yeah, yeah. uh, the push man and other stories. Um, and, uh, I was trying to think of the, the awards that this won, um, or just the recognition that it got the incognito, um, you know, the publisher was Vertigo actually. Was it? Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. He, so and so it may have been through that other label that it was distributed. Um, okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, one thing I wanted to touch on in it, it, it was his afterward, which was, as I mentioned, he wrote it in 2017 on the republication of the book and he writes it, um, during that unite the right rally in Charlottesville. Oh, um, wow. so he's, lo he was looking at it and saying like, this is this, you know, we're watching racial terrorism again. Um, and I think the moment we're seeing now that's really highlighted at this moment in June, 2020 is, um, how that, uh, racial terrorism has been institutionalized, uh, you know, by police forces. And like my experience, uh, not learning about the civil war as a senior in high school, I think very much, uh, uh police departments don't realize what they have not learned. Mm -hmm. And so those individuals within those, uh, institutions may not understand that, you know, that there's something that's been overlooked and that's what's, ca that's caused this, uh, this problem that has exacerbated to this day. In other words, it might not be an overt racism, but that system that's been put in place, um, it positively favors one group while negatively, you know, disfavoring another, um, and, and, and Matt, to, to the point I made, he, you know, he talks about in that afterward, there wasn't a moment when he wasn't aware of lynchings. And so to think like, this is a guy that's roughly my age and, and I grew up, you know, in the South, not really hearing about lynchings. Like I, I knew that it was a thing that existed, but you didn't know the prevalence of it or the violence of it. You know, um, you, I, I knew it was a racist act for sure, but you know, I didn't know that it was a spectacle and that it was, uh, all of the, the further horror that it is, you know, the, you know, the, it's interesting yeah. as you're saying that a lot, I almost wonder if some of that obfuscation isn't from a place of shame, isn't from I a agree. community going, you know, Oh my God, I can't believe we did that. We, I just, we, to even talk about it now is just too painful. Let's not even, yeah. And not, not that it's a hundred percent that, but a lot of it is that like, we can't, it's just too much for us to even acknowledge this well, terrible thing. And then it just becomes, it just becomes normal to not acknowledge. It, and then by, by result becomes almost institutionalized to your point in its own regard, just because, it, yeah. you know, for, for, for valid reasons, it was sort of put aside, but it's like, no, no, we actually, you need to lean into that shame. I mean, I'm thinking about Germany in world war II. Like you go visit the Holocaust museum and they're very, it's, it's, it's like they have a really hard time being like, yeah, we mm. did this. You know, it's like, it's, it, this, that shame is very powerful. It's powerful in that it helps create 
change, it helps create you know progress, but at the same time, it also it can it can be a mask that you know covers up things that shouldn't otherwise be covered up. So you kind of have to toggle that that very that, you know that, that fine line if you're of the community that you know historically has to look back and go, oh my God, we we and America's not as a country is, is doesn't handle shame very well. <laughs> like we we you know we're we're so interested in the mythology of America and like we do great stuff and we've done a lot of great stuff, but it's like, it's the shame of the shitty stuff that we've done along with the great stuff. That's really hard for us to put in the same light. And I think a lot of what we're seeing now is, is finally acknowledging, yeah, we did all that and we're ashamed of it and we need to just work through it and try to fix it. And to your point, what a great medium comics are to look at that because one of the, one of the things you and I point to that got us into comics are those moments where, uh, and, and sorry for if this analogy sounded kind of crass, but where when the superhero, when you learn the superhero is really not all that heroic yes. or that powerful. Mm-hmm. And that is the problem we're confronting with older generations about America. My parents for sure think America is Superman, yeah. you know, yeah. and that is not and never has been the case, you know, and you think of those those little institutionalized uh, problems that exacerbated and, and, and whitewashed and made everything, you know, covered it over for shame or for trying to rewrite history, you know, to the, the, the daughters of Con- Confederacy's, uh, legacy of trying to rewrite the history of the civil war, yeah. uh, you know, as though all these States that mentioned slavery in their, uh, articles of secession were not actually fighting for slavery, that it was somehow States rights, that yeah. bullshit that like, you know, my parents, like to a great extent, I mean, sorry, I don't mean to like call them out on that, but like they, they buy into that, that it was an angry phone call later, Todd. I know. Uh, don't worry. They, they haven't figured out how to listen to a podcast. Yet. Okay. Right. <laughs> but you know, that I, 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 that's not, that's again, that's not their, their personal failing. That's yeah. a failing yeah, yeah. of the educational system around them. And one of the things that Daughters of Confederacy did was go to those Southern public schools and say, we need to tell the story in a different way. And as I understand the story, that's that's what the DAC did. And so they fucked up yeah. <laughs> all those yeah. people's understanding of history. Like, you know, and it's, I don't know if that's, sorry if that's getting off the track, but that's, that's right. what, that's what we're looking at now. You know, yeah. and it, it, the, the Trumpist slogan is we need to make America Superman again. And, and the rest of us are saying it never was Superman like that, you know, everything about the founding of this country was racist. You know, the it's interesting you <laughs> the, say all this though, Missouri I, compromise and the electoral college and all of those things. As I've said many times, one of my, I mean, my entry point back into comics in a big bad way was a combination of what you know, really discovering Watchmen, um, the the graphic novel, not the HBO show, but like the original graphic novel, which is all is 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 nothing but. What you expected and what you thought about the superhero genre is incorrect. These are flawed people making right. flawed decisions. Like that was interesting to me, as was the the more modern take on that Injustice Gods Among Us, which right in issue one is like, yeah, Superman kills the Joker because he just he loses it. He gets he gets pushed too far and he loses it. And it sets up the emotion, the entirety of that enti- that whole series is based on that moment. And the the, the terrible choices Superman keeps making. Um, and kind of along his, his jilted warped view of what's right and wrong after that moment. So it's for me, like that's the, that's always interesting. So it's, it's, it's 
I'm going to now really take seriously this idea that there's a lot of people who do not like gods among us or injustice gods among us because Superman is portrayed that way. Yeah. And it's like, we need our, our, Sully, our hero. Yeah. We need, we need, and, and, and I, I get it. Right. I get some people need to believe in something. They need to believe in unimpeachable good and unimpeachable, you know, like characters and all that. And I get that. I think it's just, we need, we need uh, comics to give us that counterpoint now and then, or more, or, or often enough where it's like, okay, if you still want to believe in that, great, but understand people are flawed. Human beings are flawed. And here's what can happen when those flaws, you know, become too much or, or, or veer us in a different direction. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, goodness gracious. I, I mean, wanna... we could talk about this all day. Well, I, I didn't want to make, I didn't want to draw a clean line between incognito and, you know, Ingust, injustice gods among us. That's not what I'm trying to do. Well, um, no, I meant it in the other way. Like I, I think we, once we start thinking about this, you know, it's that funny comment I saw on Twitter where, uh, someone responded to a feminist saying, uh, well, the problem is once I start to look at it through this lens, everything looks like it's yeah. <laughs> patri the patriarchy. And it's like, yeah, dude, it fucking is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, I think that's exactly what, what our podcast is supposed to do. And so, uh, uh, um, yeah, I, I don't think you're wrong to, to draw that line from something like this to how people look at Injustice Gods Among Us. You know, I mean, just that title, Gods Among Us, is like kind of mocking. Yeah. You know, yeah. of like, oh, these are gods among us. Really? Yeah. Um, that's, that's a great point. And uh, just the whole series is just kind of pulling down that notion. Like, no, they're not. Well, they really are. I, you know, uh, it, my gosh, I could come up with so many flawed books, but I did want to, I did want to close what I was talking about, um, with, uh, positive suggestions, which is the comic book legal defense fund this week in their newsletter sent a, um, great list of anti-racism graphic novels, uh, a reading and resources list. So go to cbldf.org. Um, the comic book legal defense fund is like a first amendment, um, organization that, uh, it, it promotes that discussion and gosh, what else do we want to call it? Freedom through, yeah. through comic books. Like that is their, the medium through which they address these things, but they're often involved in, um, uh, legal cases and lawsuits that are much bigger than just comic books, but they see it as, you know, that's their entry into it. Um, so great organization and they just have yeah, an awesome list. Incognito is on that. Um, and, uh, was this the one that also, um, yeah, yeah. Where they divided up into speculative fiction and, uh, realistic fiction. And so I going through this, you know, like, chalked up a bunch of books like, Hey, I'm going to read this. Uh, one that I'm really interested in is bitter root, which is on image. Um, and I just noticed on image, there are only eight issues into this. So mm. that's like one of those series where I'm like, Oh, I'm going to jump into this, this new series. And, um, anyway, uh, hopefully that's a <laughs> big shout out. Well, big shout out to CL CBLDF too. They're typically in comic shops. You'll see kind of a, 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 sh a rack or a, a table or something that has kind of freebies and giveaways and stuff. And typically the, the CBLDF has some kind of flyer or something that does a lot of great curation, um, around different you know themes or topics or things going on. So I've, I've always been a fan. Re regrettably, I didn't realize they had a newsletter until just this moment. So I just signed up to get that nice. week's newsletter too. 
thank you for that that shout out. I feel bad now because I've been a huge fan of that organization and did not know they had a newsletter. Well, the, and that's probably a good moment to say, hey, everybody, go check out cbldf.org because one way that they get a lot of exposure is at Comic Cons, which, as we know, is not happening this year. Mm-hmm. Um, not just San Diego, but they always have a booth like at, at every local comic convention. And it's usually staffed by your local comic book shop employees who are volunteering their time. Um, those are great ways for people to like learn about the organization and donate because they'll always have, uh, books signed by the creators, you know, that are, um, uh, I, I assume donated to CBLDF so that they can, they can take all the, the money from that purchase. Uh, and that's just not happening this year. So, um, you know, for a hundred bucks, you get a patch and a t-shirt and a cool little card that says you're a member, but you can even donate less than that if you want. So it's a, uh, it's a pretty cool place to point out point two fantastic (laughs) crazy time awesome oh boy what did what did you read this week because i am i'm like emotionally exhausted from oh yeah thinking about this (laughs) that's why i wanted you to go first a because i knew um you'd have a really good take on incognito and two because i have a bunch of different books i'm gonna i'm gonna shout out four um and i'm not gonna go into as much detail as you did just for for both time and because some of these are actually by uh uh white creators but telling a very powerful black, you know, shedding light on a very powerful black story. So it's a little bit different. Um, and some of these are, I, I wanted to really kind of delve deeper into comics or graphic novels and, and just sort of how, you know, politics and graphic novels can really work together to, to, to do powerful things. And so I have yeah. a, a very, very diverse, um, array of books. Um, one I'm going to shout out, actually, it's not on the list that I sent you, so it's going to be new to you, but uh, is George Takai's book. They called oh, us man, enemy. Thank you. Um, and I, sorry, I, I talked almost, over that. It's called, they call us enemy. They called what, us enemy. Yeah. George what Takei. a great book to pull. I'm so glad you're talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it is a single graphic novel came out last year. We actually, uh, reviewed it in the last, uh, escape velocity book club before quarantine. We actually discussed this book. Um, and it's, it really, it, it's a, it's really good because it, it's from George's point of view. When he was a child, he and his family were taken from their homes and put in the Japanese internment camps. And going back and talking about, you know, the history you're not really taught that well in high school. Holy crap! This there, uh, there are a couple key events that I got either just barely, barely mentioned to or no exposure at all to uh, until I was well out of college. And the Japanese internment camps are one of them. Like you, know, you're, it's mentioned, but we, they don't really go into a, bu- a bunch of detail, which is tragic because South Dakota itself, as a state, was home to at least two of those internment camps, um, maybe Wait, more. Which is another thing that 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 I have to remind myself of every time. I literally just had to look this up to remind myself of it. He, here, here's a, a young Japanese American born in Los Angeles. Uh, interred in uh, Santa Anita Park and then transferred to Arkansas. Yeah. So yeah. it's not like they it's not like they just separated the Japanese from their community but kept them local. They moved them to the middle of the country so that they would not be seen. Yeah. Yeah, and buses that had um they they covered the window so nobody could see in. Um it this, talk about shame. This was a shameful act that people were ashamed of at the time of doing it. And it's like, "Oh my god, so the I mean, it's it is 
you get both the, the actual reality of what it was like to be a child in those camps and spend, you know, a year to two of your life there and like what you left behind and the tragedy of that. At the same time, it's, it's a little bit, the, the monotony of being in those camps is very apparent in the book. Um, you know, some people I've talked to about it said it, it kind of felt a little boring from time to time. That's because the environment he grew up in was itself very boring. So you kind of have to understand that like you're going to, you're going to get a very realistic account of what it was like, but from a child's point of view. So it's interesting to see George as a child kind of talking about these things that, you know, as, as an adult, you read them and go, Oh my God, that did you, did he realize what was happening? Um, but from a child's point of view, you know, that his parents tried really hard to kind of make it seem at least a bit normal or a bit like it's an adventure, you know, to try to make it less traumatic for the kids. So you kind of get the, the view from, you know, his, his child's eyes, but also from, you know, his, you know, as an adult, he's able to go back and empathize with his parents and kind of understand and put context around what they must've been feeling, um, having to shepherd both themselves through this crisis, but also their children. And you just get a really firm understanding of, wow, America did this to these people in it, not long ago, within the last hundred years, you know, people are still alive who went through it, at, you know, as, as other victims or went through it as, you know, soldiers who had to be there. So just, you know, owe it to yourself, take you know, during this whole time, um, understand kind of an, a, another point of view from another piece of racial injustice from our history. They call this enemy George Takei. And yeah. if you don't know by this point, George Takei, also of Star Trek fame, he, uh, I mean, I, my God, think Star about Trek. what, think about what that show did for yeah. representation in a time when that was barely mentioned at all. Like, Hey, we're going to have this sort yeah. of revolutionary cast from, I mean, all countries. I mean, there was a Russian guy on for God's sake. And that was during the cold war. Like there was, there were all these yeah. perspectives that were represented. So Star Trek did a lot to, and George Takei, I think, I think, t you know, takes great pride in the fact that Star Trek did a lot to push, you know, push the idea of diversity and push, you know, and other points of view and just representation on TV. So yeah, yeah. And, and put those faces on the screen, you know, and not yeah. just talk about it. Like they were starring in those roles. Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely recommend They Call This Enemy. Um, another book, uh, oof. this one is about, this one is from a, a, a white author named Don Brown, um, but unbelievably powerful. It's called The Unwanted Stories of the Syrian Refugees. I actually grabbed this last year. Escape Velocity uh, has a really good sort of, um, you know, political action kind of, uh, you know, curated section that, you know, books that are very relevant. Um, and this one in particular caught my eye because A, I, I knew very little about the Syrian refugee crisis other than sort of top level news that you'd read. And I knew it was a, I knew it wasn't the greatest situation in the world and there was a lot of strife and a lot of problems, but seeing this, you know, he did a lot, uh, Don Brown does a lot of really thorough investigative research to, to write his books. He's very prolific as an author, but journalist first and foremost. So taking his, his journalist training and really you know, getting the firsthand accounts of the Syrians who were, you know, had to cross the, you know, cross these, these you know, large bodies of water, large bodies of land, you know, with their families, not knowing if they're ever going to see their home again. Um, you know, for, for no fault of their own, having to now have their entire life upturned and, and kind of figure out, you know, what life looks like now and have it constantly be changing. Like, just an incredibly powerful look at what these people are still going through now. Like this is still a problem now. This hasn't been solved yet. Um, just, I, I couldn't, I, it left me kind of gutted, you know, just, I don't want to even get into too much detail because it's, it's just one of those books you have to pick up and just experience in one sitting and just sort of reflect on it. 
Um, he absolutely has probably one of the most rigorous um, bibliographies I've ever seen of a graphic novel. Um, you know, very everything's expertly sourced. The bibliography wow. itself is probably almost 10 pages just of all the different, you know, uh, newspaper clippings and personal accounts, um, from a variety of refugees themselves. So yeah, it's a white author, but he goes out of his way to really organize and contextualize and harness these stories into a powerful piece. And I'm so glad he did it. Cause it was something that just as a, as a, you know, person alive in 2020, um, you know, I, I felt like I, I owed it to myself to know more about what was going on. And this is something that the news, We'll really never have the time, to, you know, the news will never have a time to tell. You can't really do it cleanly in a documentary or a movie. A graphic novel is truly the best way to to tell that story. And the art too is very, it's kind of got a very hand-drawn watercolor um, vibe to it that, that fits the stories very, very well. Kind of feels the way some of the text appears, um, uh, over over the the art kind of gives it sort of a newspaper or journalistic feel anyway, so it, it does kind of fit together very well. Where, whereas the George Takai book, the art is very clean and very accessible, kind of not too dissimilar from Incognito in that it has a kind of a manga like quality, but it's very much that you know they call this enemy is about is is a is a story told from a child's point of view, so the art kind of fits that. With the unwanted. It's very much you almost could feel like the, the art was being drawn by one of the refugees as as their story was unfolding. You know, kind of you you feel like, wow, this was you know, this could have been drawn yesterday and these events could be just as fresh. Um, so it's incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful. Yeah, this um, looks amazing. I love this, uh, this art is so is so perfect to tell that story. Very, very just it has a very even if you're it's a book that if you're not somebody who is accustomed to comics or graphic novels, or you just, you haven't had a lot of experience reading them. I would have no problem handing you this because you, mm. it, it, it's very human stories told very, you know, at a very high level. And I don't think anybody who's not used to comics, you know, you will take something away from this book. Um, you know, I can think of many people who I know who are you know, not comics, comics readers, but would take, you know, would probably be very, very impacted by this book. So uh, think about that one. I want to also give a shout out to another book also by a white author, uh, but uh, Nate Powell has a, a collection of all of his pieces uh, called You Don't Say. And it's all of his newspaper, you know, things that he's drawn or written for newspapers or other comics, magazines or other things, kind of a nice anthology, a collection of all his different things. They fit together. Uh, I, oddly enough, they all kind of fit together thematically, loosely, but they, you know, they, there's sort of a through line. But there's one particular story I want to draw attention to called Like Hell I Will. And it was uh, drawn originally in 2008 from a copy of um, Syncopated Number no. 4, which was a comics magazine. Um, it came out in 2009. But Like Hell I Will is the first time I ever experienced the Tulsa, um, the Tulsa Massacre. And just, you know, knowing what it was, knowing that it happened, um, just unbelievably the fact that this is the first time I even knew that that was a thing really just shook me to my core. And it, it actually, the, the first couple panels start off, um, um, on the first page it says, yes, it's all true. And then it just goes in and kind of gives you a top level, you know, top Tulsa's population exploded at the turn of the last century. The mostly black neighborhood of Greenwood was a classic American success story. So just building up this idea that look, black people, you know, black, uh, um, 
Black Wall Street was in Tulsa. It was, you know, not that long after the Civil War. Here's this group of people that did said said, okay, we're gonna embrace the American dream. We're gonna, you know, put all our effort, all our, our energy, all our knowledge into building a better life for ourselves, actually got success doing it, actually, you know, found a way to get a, a leg up, um, having you know come from this this very tragic background. And then the the white population of Tulsa burned it all down. Literally burned it all down. Um, and yeah. you see it expertly. I mean, we don't have to get into the weeds. You see it depicted very, very viscerally in the HBO Watchmen series, which that was probably where most people, I think, heard about Tulsa for the first time. Um, but I really want to give a shout out to Nate Powell for for putting this into such, you know, it's a very short story. It's, you know, it doesn't, doesn't get into all the detail, but gives you enough of it where you're like, this, this happened. This was a thing. Um, and just the fact that, that this guy was how I discovered it, you know, discovered that story. I just want to, you know, pay, pay tribute to. And this, this is, that is in the collection called you don't say you don't say by Nate Powell. Yeah. And there's other stories in there that are equally powerful, really interesting stuff. He's just an incredible talent across the board. Um, so pick up that collection anyway, you're just, you're going to see a lot of, a lot of great, uh, points of view from his head, but that particular story it's in the middle and it, definitely shot, you know, it really, well, really shook me. One thing that stands out to me is you talk about that and the unwanted is that, correct me if I'm wrong, but it looks like both Nate Powell and, uh, Don Brown, Don Brown. did, did their own illustration. Yeah. So you're, yep. you're really getting that like unfiltered. I, I mean, it is filtered through them, but it is like that, um, almost that journalistic quality in the sense of like a personal journal. Yes. You know, Thank you like, for clarifying that. I didn't mention Don Brown also illustrated his work too, but yeah, both guys wrote and illustrated it both, you know, took a very considered point of view and gave it as much context as possible. And yeah, it, it does both feel like, even though the, the, um, pardon me, even though the, um, the Tulsa story is shorter, um, it does feel very much like there's a, there's a, there's an immediacy to it. Like you almost feel like both of them could have happened yesterday. And like, these were sort of like, you know, drawn from the field and handed in. And like, here, here we are reading about these things. So you feel a connection to it that you wouldn't otherwise. As a reader, are you feeling like, you know, this, this is this author illustrator also learning about this moment and wanting to communicate it more broadly? I think so. That's a very, sort of that very astute uh, perspective. Like you can, you can tell they were as shaken about these things as right. and, and sort of like, oh my God. And like I other people have to see this. And that 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 clearly is that clearly comes through the the you know the pages as you're as you're flipping through. Yeah, just looking at the sample pages um from the unwanted, I, I was like I you know that that was the immediate feeling I got of like this this is like a person who just had to communicate out yeah what they were reading about. Um and who has a ton of empathy for these people. Like drawing them, you you can see like as the as the unwanted progresses, going back to that for a second, you can see the characters like their their shoulders start to sloop down the longer they're in this this predicament. Like they're sort of their body, the way they carry their bodies, and sort of the the you know the the faces are very very simple kind of you know pencil drawings, but you can see the the fear, the shame, or just the the exhaustion on their faces and the anger when they sort of start to really you get fed up with their, their predicament. Like it's just, it's all very, very human, very clearly human. Yeah. Wow. 
The other book I want to mention, and this is a little trickier because it is very much an anthology. Um, and I'm a little sad I didn't get to it sooner, but again, I actually bought this the same day I bought the unwanted at escape velocity from their, um, they're not, they're well curated, uh, you know, kind of political graphic novel shelf, but it's called Occupy Comics. It was created, uh, shortly after Occupy Wall Street, um, back in 2011, 2012. And it's, um, from 50 different comics creators of all backgrounds, all, um, uh, all, all diverse, you know, all persuasions, all, I mean, it's just, it's, it's anybody and everybody. Um, and the back has a very, a very kind of, uh, thorough bibliography about this, you know, who, you know, everything from Alan Moore to, um, Anna, I can never, never pronounce her name. Anna Weisscheck, um, Tyler Crook, Guy Denning, uh, Matt Bors, Ailish Cott. It's just, it's a, it's a superstar list of different perspectives, but it is, as an art piece, like it, it tells all these different stories of Occupy Wall Street, either, you know, then, you know, they're in New York City at the time, or um, there's one called Homestead, which is about the, um, you know, the Pinkertons kind of you know, taking down a, a, a riot uh, in the 1800s, you know, similar sort of mirrored stories. You get, um, you get kind of one-off pages, you know, that, that you know, just, it's a simple one page comic. You get other things. That's almost like a, a piece of Banksy art. So it, it really, as you're flipping through it, it just, it, it, it covers so many different perspectives and points of view, but then you get to the middle. And of course, Alan Moore does an entire like 20 page essay, uh, just pure text, uh, about the, um, you know, the foment it's called Buster Brown at, at the barricades, foment in the funnies and comics is counterculture. So it's, it's, Alan Moore going to great, basically giving you a history lesson about how comics and counterculture has worked together, um, which of all the people to to give you that, I, it, he's probably top of the list. And I feel like, <laughs> I mean, it's like one of those things like you don't even want to draw attention to this other person. But when I looked up the Wikipedia for uh, Occupy Comics, it tells you so much that you need to know about how good this project must have been when, when you see that there's a footnote that comic books... Uh, fairly racist <laughs> curmudgeonly uncle Frank Miller <laughs> attacked <laughs> yep. Occupy Wall Street. Like you're reminded that like he wrote basically that bullshit that we're hearing from Trump's mouth now, you know, yeah. um, uh, looking to the wrong parts of the movement as though that characterizes all the, the positive parts of the movement. Um, or sorry, not even looking at the wrong parts of the movement, just looking at like the, you know, the people, the the thugs and looters who take advantage of an actual uh, positive protest to sort of, you know, sow anarchy. And, and there's Frank Miller <laughs> painting yeah. with this broad oh, brush like he yeah. always does. Just, just a mention- quick, quick reminder that before his other DK3, he wrote a, a very racist, uh, xenophobic take on Batman that DC rejected. <laughs> That's right. God, it's... <laughs> I want to mention too that Occupy Comics, um, it did start off as a Kickstarter project. Yeah. And so, you know, the crowd, it, everything about this is is so pure. So it's a book uh, of a variety of different perspectives and different takes on the themes of Occupy Wall Street. It's crowdsourced, and so you get you get the big list of backers at the very beginning. It itself, you know, it it functions across so many different dimensions and artistic styles. And you just, you get, by the time you're done with this thing, it, it feels like an art artifact just in general. I almost wish there was a hardcover version I could, I could have, cause it would, I think even be more meaningful, but you get this, this beautiful art artifact that, that I think is just as relevant rereading today, considering 
um, you know, how the management of protests uh, has occurred, how, you know, splinter groups and things can co-opt protests for, for their yeah. own purposes. You just, you get all of this context from an event that is only 10 years old, barely. God, um, and just that kind of applying feels... that today is so, so profound. Yeah, it, it, it is. And it, it goes, just goes back to all those, like yeah, the opening frustration that we were talking about on the show. Like it's been so long and we are just watching, you know, history repeating itself, I guess, in that way and, and hoping that there's forward momentum that comes out of that. I'm really curious to see, and I, I, I don't want this to sound like a, this, this could easily sound the wrong way, but I'm, I am curious to see what great art gets made during this time that we're talking about, you know, two, three, five, ten years. Um, not that you need, I mean, it, it, ideally we wouldn't need these, these, these events to, to necessitate great art, but out of, you know, if anything can come out of this stuff, um, outside of good, positive, progressive change is the art, you know, like, how are people in kind of immortalizing these moments in yeah. personal stories? Like, what's that going to look like? I'm actually, I, I hesitate to say excited, but I am, I'm kind of like, I'm excited to see how people take this and, and, and really do put a personal point of view on it so that we can back to your original point so that future generations, younger people can, you know, from a lack of education, take these pieces and actually get informed and get, get that context and get, Hey, there was you know, a person who's, who was there. This is, this is that story through their point of view, artistically, artistically given. And it could be everything from photography to, to graphic novels and comics. But I'm hoping that a lot of great art will come out of this much like this Occupy comics project. I'm hoping there'll be a lot more, um, uh, from this, this particular moment in time too. Well, I, I mean, there's for sure stories to be told that we need to, you know, much like my experience with incognito forcing me to like confront what, what did I know about lynchings? Like, yeah, uh, everything has been so compressed in this, uh, uh regime of Trump that we're going to have to look back at it through the lens of, of artists and, and, you know, and really like to really experience it and feel like, you know, that what can put that fine point on the emotion that I can't even find because we're living in a pandemic exacerbated by, you know, this, this horrible man at the top of our country's leadership. Like, yeah. you know, it's to, to a point you made off air of like, you think of all the good qualities of a human being and, uh, Trump embodies none of them. Mm. Um, you know, we're, we're, yeah, it's, it, We've got, <laughs> yeah, we've got, this is a thing we can't even get a perspective on now. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, so, uh, well, and I'll just, I'll summarize, but I'll kind of close by saying too, it's one thing to, to watch a five minute video of a, you know, of a news report of something, or even like somebody's, you know, you know, iPhone account of something. It's something to just read a, you know, a news article, a historic you know news article. Like, Oh, you know, let's, let's read about the, uh, the civil rights movement. We can read about it in books and in news clippings. It's another thing entirely to be presented a thing that is from somebody's very specific point of view that's artistically done in a medium where you're seeing visually what's going down and you're able to, to take it in and consider it. Yeah. Comics, uh, I've said it already, but comics is uniquely positioned to truly provide the appropriate level of, of context to some of these very important events that yeah. I just don't think any other medium, I mean, even the best documentary can't do what comics can do um, exactly. to tell these stories. I, I love that you brought that up because, and I, we've quoted this before and I've forgotten the origin of this quote, but the, uh, some very smart person who'd said that reading 
uh, reading is so like wonderful because you're able to like sort of take an idea and hold it where you're not, um, you don't have to, you know, like exactly believe it. You know, you can kind of hold it and examine it and play with it and think about it because you're just seeing the words in your head. Yeah. And I think comics pushes it one step beyond that with the visuals. So you're you're getting to sort of see it and while you examine that idea in a way that, like you point out, it's like filmed media doesn't do that because, uh, you know, if you you show someone who disagree, you know, a, a, a climate change denier, a documentary about climate change. Well, they tune out immediately and it doesn't, they're not, they don't have a chance to examine those ideas as they watch the documentary. You know, they've already <laughs> blocked it, yeah. but um, yeah, comics is a, has a really unique take on that. So we will be doing more of this. Yeah. Um, I had a little conclusion, which was uh, to say, you know, what do we do from here as, as sort of human beings? Um, and uh, I, I I take to heart what I've heard from a lot of people, which is like as a as a white person, I just need to listen. This is uh, you know it's not about me, and um, I need to support and and listen to the the people who have those experiences with racial terrorism and uh, the inequality in policing. Um, and uh, it's one thing I did this week was I, I haven't read it yet, so I can't talk about it, but I've purchased the book How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram mm. X. Kendi, which was recommended by um, people telling me to shut up and listen. Um, and I, the the thesis of that book is it's not enough to not be racist. You need to be against racism and mm -hmm. understand how thoroughly this pollutes you know, our thinking and our society and everything, um, but also to donate. And I, uh, you've seen everyone else has, has called out these organizations um, on social media, but I'll just re-up that and say the Black Visions Collective um, in Minnesota, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the Philadelphia Community Bail Fund, um, and as we mentioned before, CBLDF. Um, they're, they're not, maybe not directly uh, involved in this, these recent protests, but it's an organization that that does fight for first amendment freedoms and uh, you know, it's definitely a great resource to keep, to keep in business. Fantastic. Well, on that note, uh, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this. Uh, definitely go out and pick out some of these books. You won't regret it um, at all. Yeah. We'll keep talking about it. We look forward to our uh, discussion about March uh, volume, sorry, book one and book two later this month. So go grab March. I mean, I'm going to have, it's going to be a really great conversation. They, I'm blown away by those books. I'll definitely get volume three. We may talk about that too, but we'll, we'll focus on books one and two because there's so much story there. But if you want a, I'll just tease it this way. If you want a very immediate, relevant look at the civil rights movement and how they juxtapose to today, you're not going to find a better way to get that information. Like it's just incredibly yeah. well done. And from somebody who's still alive, who was, you know, he's still an active representative in Congress. John like, Lewis. Know, yeah. John yeah. Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. Who was, who was there who you know went through all this and you, able to kind of provide that then and now back and forth comparison and then this was obviously published before 2020 but just the the parallels are are fascinating so go grab that we'll talk about that later and yeah. uh, been a great chat sir we'll uh, we'll see you next time and we'll uh, I guess just happy reading. Yeah.